Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Okay, so this is the third week of the series Defender. And Kip started us off. He talked about being defenders of the truth, right? So are we going to follow culture or are we going to continue to stand on God's word? And then last week, Isaac preached a great word about self-sacrifice, about how as followers of Jesus, we need to lay it all on the altar. Our whole lives are on the altar before the Lord. And I thought, you know, that's a great defensive move. Because if you have it all on the altar, the enemy can't steal anything from you. He'll, st- he'll be stealing it from the Lord. That's never a good idea. So it's this idea of God as a fighter, God as a warrior, God as our defender. And when I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, I think especially in America, it's hard for us to view God in that way because we've all been taught the Jesus that is loving and peaceful, right? That's why if you search for pictures of God as a warrior or the Lion of Judah, it's impossible to find any pictures like that. And you come up, if you search for it, you come up with the pictures that Kip showed us a few weeks ago, and that's the, the Jesus that holds the lambs, or he's talking to birds, or he's floating in the sky, <laughs> right? The loving, peaceful Jesus. And listen, he is all of those things. He is the Prince of Peace. He is love. But I think what happens is many of us view Jesus in that way, so we think that that means he's always nice. And there's a difference between being nice and being good. We actually did a series on this. I don't know how long ago it was now, but it was called Tell Us Nice Things. And if you haven't listened to that series, you really should. So there's a difference between being nice and being good. And when you look at the Gospels, if you read some of the things that Jesus said and even did, like flipping tables, that would not go in the category of being nice. See, Jesus wasn't concerned with being nice. He was concerned with doing his father's business. And his father's business had to do with the goodness of God, not the niceness of God. But then there's people that say, well, what about the verse that says the kindness of God leads us to repentance? Well, the more accurate interpretation of the word kindness there is actually goodness. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. And I would say that the truth isn't always nice or kind, but it's always good. So yes, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Yes, he is love. But we cannot forget that he is also a warrior and he is a king. And what do kings do? Kings defend their kingdom. And they have an army of warriors that they send out to help defend it. And we are the warriors. We are the defenders of the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, he said, do not imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. See, we have to remember that when Jesus came to the earth, he brought the kingdom of heaven with him. And the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness do not mix together. It's like oil and water. 
Jesus actually came to separate. He came to draw a line. He came to conquer the darkness, not to make peace with it. Let's pray real quick. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that is here. Open our eyes so that we can hear this word you have tonight in Jesus' name. Okay, so I want you all to close your eyes. And I'm going to just paint a quick little picture in your minds. So imagine yourself standing in a huge valley. Grassy hills are all around. There's dirt paths leading here and there. But you know you're in danger because you can hear the thumping footsteps of a giant. And you look up and you see him coming over a distant hill. Now he's running and he's headed straight for you, getting closer and closer. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. You look around for something to defend yourself with. And the only thing within your grasp is a stone. You can open your eyes. So what does that make you think of? David and Goliath, right? That was what I was hoping. And when you think of that stone, or when we think of David with that stone, don't we often think, okay, that's the weapon. That's what I'm going to use to bring the enemy down with. That's what I'm going to use to defend myself. But that's not what it was to David. The stone wasn't the weapon. His faith was the weapon. The stone was just a stone. So we're going to be taking a look at the story of David and Goliath today, which actually was a surprise to me. It was not the direction I thought this message was going to go, but this is where the Lord led, and I've learned to listen. And honestly, I think that this story is very fitting for the church and the time that we're in because there's some giants in our land. In fact, when I look around, I feel like there's a lot more Goliaths than there are Davids right now. But I believe, I believe that God is looking around for the warriors and the defenders of his kingdom. And listen, I know this can be uncomfortable for many of us, even for me at times, but sometimes that means speaking the truth, even if it seems political. Listen, this idea that the church shouldn't get political or be involved in politics is not an idea that came from God. It's just not. Jesus said, occupy until I return. He used a parable to say it. But he said, occupy until I return. That does not exclude the government or politics. And you might be thinking of that term that we've all heard, many of us have heard, separation of church and state. That had nothing to do with the church staying out of politics, but everything to do with the government not infringing on our right to assemble and worship. So the term separation of church and state came from a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote, and that's kind of a whole history lesson in and of itself. You guys should look it up. It's interesting. But the term's not found in the Constitution. Here's what it says in the first part of the First Amendment to the Constitution. It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So the Constitution promotes freedom of religion and prohibits the federal government from inhibiting us to worship as we wish. Listen to this quote by Martin Luther King Jr. He, he said this at a church in the, I think it was 1956. <clears throat> he said, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state, and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, 
it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. Listen, you guys, when I look around at our nation right now and the world, does the church have any moral or spiritual authority right now? It, it does not. But I believe that God wants to give us that back. And I think he is going to, as long as we continue to cry out to him and continue to get on our knees and ask for his help and ask for him to intervene. So the church staying out of politics has resulted in a broken society, broken school systems, broken communities, which produce what? Broken people. The church staying out of politics results in things like this. And I think we have a picture that we're going to put up on the screen. That's terrifying. That's out of my nightmares. But you guys, this is an Aztec god whose name I can't pronounce, so I'm not going to. But he was a god that was honored with human sacrifice. And California now has an approved curriculum that includes students chanting to this god in the name of social awareness. And listen, what happens in California has a way of kind of trickling across the nation, although in Illinois right now we have a whole lot to worry about of our own. But you guys, listen, they do this stuff at night. And they, there's so much happening that it's hard to keep track. You know why? Because the enemy does not want us to be aware. He does not want us to know what's going on. But this stuff is disgusting. This is blatant evil in our faces. And you guys, the church has been silent. I don't, I'm not going to be silent anymore. We have giants in our land, and it is our calling as defenders of God to start bringing them down. So my hope today, as we revisit the story of David and Goliath, is that it's going to just ignite this fresh new fire in you, this fight in you, that you would be able to take some of these things and go home and use them to battle the wars in your own family, maybe in your neighborhood, definitely our state, our nation, the world. You guys, it's bigger than just us. So I'm hoping that you can take something from this today and apply it. Okay, so turn to 1 Samuel, Samuel, 1 Samuel, chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 23. So David is home with his dad. And he's taking care of the sheep, and he's doing all this stuff at home because he was not old enough to go to war yet. His brothers are in King Saul's army. They're at the camp. They're fighting the Philistines. And David's dad's like, hey, your brothers probably need some nourishment. Take the stuff to them. So this is where we're starting. David shows up at the camp. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt, to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant? The men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. David asked the soldier standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? So I don't think David is asking these questions because he's interested in the reward. 
He wasn't. He was more in awe that Goliath was being allowed to do what he was doing and say what he was saying, and that there was a reward on top of that to kill him, and nobody in this vast army of God was willing to do anything about it. Okay, it goes on to say, But when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyway, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. All right, let's look at this. So David shows up. He starts asking some questions because he's actually irritated. We know that because he's like, who is this guy anyway that he's allowed to be defying the armies of God? David's righteously angry because he knows who God is. And he's looking around at all these warriors who are doing nothing. You know why they're doing nothing? Because they're cowering in fear. And it says, when David's oldest brother Eliab heard David talking to the men, he was angry. Why was he angry? I think he was angry because he didn't want David rocking the boat. He didn't want David stirring anything up that could cause trouble because Eliab's thinking, hey, we're fine hiding in our tents. We're, we're going to wait for this giant to go away. Don't start trouble. You guys, sometimes we're Eliab. We get mad when other people start saying and doing things that make us uncomfortable, even though they might be sent by God. Okay, it goes on to say, Eliab says, what are you doing around here anyway? What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of, David? Just stick to what you're good at. He says, I know about your pride and deceit. So then he starts attacking him personally. You just want to see the battle. He assumes why David's there asking questions. So I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt called to do something or confront something or say something? I mean, you feel it in your bones. You know the Lord is leading you in this direction. So you step out in obedience and faith. And the people that you thought would be the ones to encourage you and come alongside you and support you are actually the ones to discourage you. Maybe even the ones that try to stop you. But remember what Jesus said, don't imagine I have come to bring peace. I will set son against father, mother against daughter, brother against brother, sometimes friend against friend. We shouldn't be surprised when things like that happen. So the first point I want to put up on the screen if you're taking notes is... Don't be a roadblock. Don't be a roadblock. Make sure that you're not the person who's getting in the way of who God is calling just because it makes you uncomfortable. And then notice how Eliab accuses David of being prideful. So number two, don't mistake the absence of fear for pride. Don't mistake the absence of fear for pride. Because, listen, a lot of times the absence of fear is actually faith. And we're trying to squash that in people. So what if God is calling someone to do something he hasn't called you to do? And it makes you a little uncomfortable. But, listen, that's okay. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. God calls us all to do and say different things at different times. So what if God's calling someone to do something? that will actually bring you freedom, but you're trying to stop it because you don't understand it or it makes you uncomfortable. Sometimes we try to stop the very people that God has sent to defend us. 
Sometimes we try to stop the very people God has sent to defend us. And I think many of us, including myself, we're too quick to disagree. Right? Instead of asking, what could the Lord be doing? What's the, what's the bigger picture that I can't see? What does God want to show me? Okay, verse 29. What have I done now, David replied. I was only asking a question. He walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. Then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. So I love it. I love that David did not allow the discouragement of his brother, probably brothers, and probably other people in the camp. He did not let their discouragement stop him because he didn't care what they thought. He only cared what God thought. And Goliath was defying God, and David was not going to stand for it. And his persistence got him all the way to the king. So point number three, your persistence will get the attention of the king. Your persistence will get the attention of the king. And it reminds me of the the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 11. Jesus said, suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. And And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. The door is locked for the night and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this. Though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. Your shameless persistence. I tell you what, guys, we are living in a time where your persistence will pay off. We, we need persistence right now to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, to keep our eyes focused on the truth, to keep stepping out in obedience. It takes persistence. Okay, verse 32. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. And I just want to make a note of this. David was around 16, 16 or 17 at this time. So he says, I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. David persisted because he knew exactly who his God was. And it didn't matter if Goliath had been a man of war since his youth, because David's God was also a man of war. But a man of war who has no beginning and no end. So David's God was a man of war long before Goliath got that title. Exodus 15.3, the Israelites are praising and singing to God. They say, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Isaiah 42, 13, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. That is the God David knew. Verse 34. I have been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. (laughs) I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me 
from this Philistine. So David says, when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it. Church, listen, when the enemy comes to steal something that is yours, whether it's in the natural, like finances, children, your health, whatever it may be, or if it's in the spiritual, things like our mind, our sanity, um, the truth that's in us, our authority in Jesus, our power in Jesus, he loves to steal those things. Whatever it is, whatever he's trying to steal from you, don't just sit there and watch it happen. Go after him. Go Go after him. Defend what is yours. And then if the enemy decides he's up for a fight, which he often does, that's okay because that just gives you an opportunity to catch him and kill him so that that enemy doesn't come back again. One thing I absolutely love about David is that even though David is the one who goes after the enemy, even though David is the one who catches the enemy and kills it, he gives the glory to God every time because he knows God gives him the victory. And it makes me wonder how many times God is waiting for us to go after the enemy so he can give us the victory. The victory is waiting. We just have to go after it. David says, the Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. David was the one who was physically battling the enemy, but God delivered the enemy into his hands. So the fourth point is, go after him. Go after him. When your enemy comes to steal, kill, or destroy, go after him. Defend what is yours. Okay, it goes on to say in verse 37, Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet, and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, and took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into a shepherd's bag. Then, armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. See, David went out there with the armor of God, not the armor of men. The armor of God is in Ephesians 6. You can read about the armor of God. If you've never read it, I would suggest reading it. Because, see, when we try to fight our battles without God, it actually just weighs us down. When we try to fight in our own strength, that hinders us from having victory. So number five, whose armor are you wearing? Whose armor are you wearing? When you have a battle to fight, are you putting on your own strength? Or are you putting on the armor of God? Another question about this passage is, why did David bring his staff out there? Why did he bring his staff? He knew he wasn't going to, like, club, you know, Goliath to death with it. It wasn't going to do anything. And I was thinking about this, and I thought, you know what? I think it was a sign of humility. Because it reminded him of who he was, just a shepherd boy. And he knew the victory wouldn't come because of who he was, but because of who God was. Because it was the same staff he carried when God delivered him from the lions and bears. So he was walking out there with that staff, confident that God was going to do the same with Goliath. Okay, verses 41 through 45. 
Goliath walked out toward David with his shield-bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Did you know that it's okay to talk to your enemy? I do it all the time. And if people saw me, they'd think I was nuts because we have an invisible enemy. Ephesians 6.12, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. So most of the battles that we face are things we can't see that are causing those. But see, listen, your enemy might be unseen, but he's very real. And he can't read our thoughts because he's not God, but he can hear our words. He can see our hands lifted to God in praise. He can sense and hear and feel the atmosphere of worship. He can hear the name of Jesus, and he hates that. And then when you're speaking to your enemy, identify his tactics. Speak out the things you see those demons trying to do in your life. See, David says, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin. Maybe your enemy comes to you with lies, fear, and shame. Just some examples. It could be anything. But let your enemy know that you see the weapons he's coming at you with. I see you coming at me with lies, fear, and shame. And then, like David, you can say, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. In the name of Jesus. So number six, the name of the Lord is more powerful than your enemy's weapons. The name of the Lord is more powerful than your enemy's weapons. Okay, now here's my favorite part of the whole story. Starting in verse 46. David says, today the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head. You guys, that's so good. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, and everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him, just like he did with the lions and bears, right? He went after him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David says, the Lord will conquer you. And I will kill you and cut off your head. So listen, God will conquer our enemies, but sometimes we have to carry out the execution. God will conquer our enemies, but sometimes we have to carry out the execution. See, God's already conquered our enemies. That's what Jesus did on the cross. The enemy has been conquered, but sometimes we are called to get in the battle and cut some heads off. Obviously, I don't mean literally, although, I don't know. Maybe there'll come a time for that. I don't know. 
Because we're, we're fighting an unseen realm. So most of the time we have to fight with our spiritual weapons. That is our praise, our faith, speaking out the word of God, declaring his promises, declaring his truth. See, Goliath was real. But for us, I think he's a picture of some of the giants that we might face in the spiritual realm. And I think we can take some pointers from David. So number seven, we are called to carry out the execution of our enemies. We are called to carry out the execution of our enemies. Verse 50. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. See, the stone in the forehead brought Goliath down, but it didn't kill him. David used Goliath's own sword to do that. And I think we have to remember, when we engage in the battle, when we take steps to be the defenders, like God has called us to be, that he's going to make sure we have everything we need to carry out the victory. We just have to be obedient. And I think, I think we're in a time right now, you guys, that we have to start stirring up our faith. We need to get excited that we get to be a part of this battle. Our faith is a weapon. David's faith is what brought Goliath down. And when I read this story, there's one thing that stands out, stands out the most to me, and it's the way that David continually points to the Lord. He never takes credit for killing the lions and the bears. He never takes credit for killing Goliath. He was always praising God, always declaring who God was. Psalm 149. This is so good. Listen. It's verses 6 through 9 if you're looking for it. Psalm 149, 6 through 9. Let the praises of God be in their mouths and a sharp sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples to bind their kings with shackles and their leaders with iron chains, to execute the judgment written against them. This is the glorious privilege of his faithful ones. Praise the Lord. Okay, did you hear that? Were you listening? The praises of God in your mouth and a sharp sword in your hand will bind kings and leaders and execute judgment on them. And I think that that can mean in the natural world, so literal kings and rulers, but definitely in the unseen world. Speaking of the rulers and principalities of the unseen realm that it talks about in Ephesians. And do you know what the sword is in your hand in that verse? Do you know what that sword is? You're right, Barbara. It is the word of God. The Bible says the word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It also says in Hebrews, the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. That's the sword we yield against our enemies. And then the best part, it says it's the glorious privilege of his faithful ones. It is a privilege to be a part of the battle. Okay, as we're coming to a close here, this is just a cool part of the story that I wanted to share. So about 12 years... After David killed Goliath, David was running from King Saul because King Saul wanted to kill him. And someone warned David, so David left in a hurry. He's in the wilderness wandering around for a little while. He becomes very hungry. So one day he shows up at the tabernacle, and he asked the priest there for something to eat. Now, mind you, this priest, he knew who David was, but he didn't realize that he had been running from Saul. 
So he's like, hey, can I have something to eat? The priest gives him some bread. And then it says in 1 Samuel 21, 8 through 9, it says, David asked Ahimelech, do you have a spear or sword? The king's business was so urgent that I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. I only have the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, the priest replied. It's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Take that if you want it, for there's nothing else here. There is nothing like it, David replied. Give it to me. See, David was facing a new giant. This time, his name was King Saul. But the Lord is so good. He is so faithful. He wanted to remind David once again of who his God was. That sword reminded David that the same God who delivered Goliath into his hands 12 years earlier was going to do the same with Saul. Guys, there's always battles to fight. There's always new giants to face. And I think maybe we just need to remind ourselves of who God is. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So the same God who took down Goliath can take down any giant that you face. But maybe you need reminded of who you are. If you say you are a follower of Jesus, then you are a defender of Jesus. So one more thought to leave you with. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. He loved God. He was a lover of God and a defender of God. Because, see, we defend what we love. We defend what we love. Do you love God? Do you love his word? Do you love the truth? If so, then you should find yourself defending it. Amen.